it's really a simple thing. You have to think about, do I want to do that at work? And if you don't, you have to say no. That's the voice of Scott McKinnon, owner of Urban Reclaimed. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, what do you know about Shaper Tools? Specifically, the Shaper Origin. As a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Scott McKinnon, owner of the Oakville, Ontario furniture company, Urban Reclaim. Scott has been in the industry for a while. Since the early 90s, he's been renovating houses, building furniture, and involved in every part of the furniture business you can think of. Over the years, along with honing his craft, he has also honed the type of business he wants to run, from general contractor to custom furniture maker. And with that switch has not only come a different way he builds furniture, but also a different way he operates his company. Follow along as we talk about the importance of saying no, what type of edge being on TV gives you in the industry, pricing for things that don't exist, and much more. Scott has years of experience under his belt, so let's jump on in and hear about his journey in his own words. Well, prior to me building furniture, I got a degree in philosophy at a university here in Canada. And I mean, between you and I, philosophers and chariot drivers have a little trouble getting work these days. So I, I had done a few things. I, um, I painted houses. I had painted u- during university and I uh, was always busy that way. And I was a good painter. And um, I also road managed a band for a year across Canada. But uh, when I came back, I've always been busy. And since I was a kid, I was always industrious and I always wanted to uh, fix a fence or uh, paint uh, the back steps or, or, you know, fix a broken window. So at some point, someone asked me about building a blanket box. So I built it and uh, it was well received. And um, that was more or less a gift. But someone else saw it and said, could you make me a corner cabinet? So I've always had a problem saying no, and which we'll get to later on. And I got some books out of the library. This is pre-internet. This is 1991. You know, I went to the library and I think I went to a place called Busy Bee Tools here in Canada. And I bought some uh, books called Table Saw Techniques and the Router Handbook and all that kind of dry reading that you'd get. 
and um, figured out what I would need and slowly built some tools up and I made a corner cabinet and I sort of remembered how I did it and I made three or four more and I was able to sell those and I thought, well, that's it. I'm just going to build furniture. And this was out of my basement in a rental in Toronto, um, you know, when I was my late 20s, I guess. And that kind of turned into more and more furniture, which I found I kind of outgrew my my seven foot ceiling basement and carrying stuff up the stairs because there was no walkout, you know, that got tiring pretty quick or got tired pretty quick. So I sort of branched into other things too. I, people would ask me about hanging doors and putting up trim. And before I actually really learned how to do it, I would say yes. And I'd sort of learn on the job and luckily have a fairly good uh, eye and a fair bit of tenacity. So I was able to eventually learn how to do all this stuff properly. And that turned into a lot of renos, but I never was as happy with that. I had lots of employees. I had uh, lots of business in Toronto, but I really enjoyed making furniture. And that's kind of what I wanted to do or making smaller projects, let's say. And eventually, I would say by the late 90s or early 2000s, I had given that up. I got married. I moved out to uh, the suburbs here and made more furniture and less renos from then on until now I don't do any renos at all and I haven't carried drywall in 10 years or more at least I would say the next and final step for me was sort of discovering older materials barn board beams uh, old joists reclaimed uh, lumber from any old product old flooring um, and turning that into something else which kind of gave me a an added thrill because we were keeping it out of the uh, landfill, keeping it from rotting. And and you could generally find a lot of this stuff for low cost or no cost. And that's been the thing that has intrigued me the most has been building with reclaimed wood. I completely hear what you're saying about going all the way back to your college years and how being a philosophy major probably wasn't going to be the uh, the profession that you thought it was going to be when you started that. But I don't know if I'm completely reaching here or what your thoughts are on this, but being a philosophy major and having those ideas, that really does probably relate back to when you were starting your business and thinking through all of the different mental pretzels that a furniture business puts you through because starting as custom and starting as renovations doing everything and and then taking your business and slowly chiseling away at it to what you want to be doing now smaller freestanding furniture pieces it's very hard to get your mind around that not only changing the building side but also changing the way you think about running your business Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I'm, I'm really happy that I, I went to university because I think it made me the person that I am and it allowed me to think through problems. I mean, that's really what philosophy is, is just it's the basis of all other disciplines, you know, the, the philosophy of, of, of um, medicine or the philosophy of law. I mean, they're all sort of it at its basic level. So that has certainly um, helped me yeah, work through, like you said, the pretzels that are, uh, are, you know, this, this business life. When you first start 
your furniture company, and this is you, but it's also for anyone who's done it. You have an idea of what you want, but that idea doesn't always last. Once you start doing it, you start actually building things. You start actually experiencing the industry, and that's when you decide where you want your business to go. Yeah, exactly. For you, you started, like we said, in renovations, in doing barn doors, in hanging drywall, in doing all of that. And that is definitely one way you could go in the industry. But you decided that that was not the way you wanted to go and that you wanted to switch. That transition is a hard one for people because you're getting all of your money from doing the renovations. And then you decide that you want to do something else. And maybe you've made that switch emotionally, but you haven't made that switch monetarily. You don't have all those customers wanting furniture. You still have customers wanting the renovations. So once you mentally switched over to wanting to do something else, how did you move your business in that direction to make it possible? Well, you know, the way that you move your business is you have to learn to say no. And I think that's a problem for most entrepreneurs is saying no, because you don't want to disappoint people. You, you don't want to be, you want to be a yes guy. You want to be a guy who gets stuff done and you want to say, sure, I can do that. Absolutely. I know how to do that. I can do that for you. And you want to take the customer's problem away. But when you find yourself, oh, I don't know, carrying 60 sheets of drywall into a basement and you go, why am I doing this? Like, why did I sign up for Oh yeah, I remember I said I would do it. It was me. I did it. So eventually, you know, with advanced uh, experience or age, whatever you want to call it, hopefully you learn at some point that the only way you're going to do the stuff that you really want to do is to say no to the stuff that you don't want to do. And maybe you used to do. And, and I mean, and speaking of you know age and experience, as you get older, maybe you don't want to do some of that stuff anymore. It becomes too hard. So just try and focus on what you want to do and learn how to say no so that you can always be doing something that you enjoy. And the business will come. I mean, it seems to, to anyone who's, who's decent at their job and is, is fair to people, you will get that business. And people will respect it too. You know, I, I think I always thought that people would be mad at me or disappointed if I didn't come back and finish their basement after I had done something two years before, but they totally understand. And they usually just say, would you recommend someone else? So hopefully you have somebody in your folder to, you know, to send their way. I completely hear what you're saying about it being hard to say no, and also being afraid to disappoint your client. I think that a lot of people who build furniture, they have it in their mind they have it in their dna that they are somebody who can fix things they are somebody who can build things and that works with building furniture but it also works with fixing people's problems and if you've done a project for somebody say you've built a table and you're dropping it off and they say my closet door is having issues there's something inherent in a furniture maker's mind that they think, oh yeah, I can also fix that. But 
that's really a slippery slope to go down because you get away from doing the right things for your business. Yes, it might be something that's good for humanity as a whole, fixing people's problems, <laughs> but as a business person, as well as somebody who's making things, you need to always remember that you need to do things that are right for your business. Yes, that's a good point. And that's something that's been probably slower coming to me than I, than I wish it had. You know, I wish I had understood that principle, uh, you know, when I started instead of diluting the brand to keep people happy. It's a hard thing to get a handle on. And I think that it does come with experience and doing it for a long time. But my hope is that people can hear this and they can get on the right track a little bit sooner because we've all been there where it's the night before and you have a project and everybody's working really, really hard to get this done. And you're thinking, why, why did the client make yeah. this deadline? It's, it was unreachable. We couldn't get it done in that timeline, but then you take a step back and you think, wait a second, I'm the one that made this timeline. I'm the one that put myself in this situation. And if I was only thinking more about what was good for my business instead of what was good for the client, I could run the business better and I could do the project better and I could give the client a better end result. Maybe it's a couple of days, maybe it's a week later, but it's going to be a better result than rushing through it without the time needed and care needed to get it done. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Every every time that that has happened to me, or if I'm doing work that I don't enjoy or feel uncomfortable doing, I, I look around for someone to blame, but it's really just me because I'm the one who agreed to do it. I said I would. I'm the one who priced it and committed to it and the timeline and everything. So nobody to blame but yourself. It's easy for us to sit here and talk about this. You know, you were doing this since the 90s and I've been doing it for a long time as well. Not that long, but also also a good amount of time. And we've done this before. We've worked through issues with clients and understood where our businesses need to come out end of the day when dealing with clients. But there are people who are relatively new to this who are still dealing with clients and they're thinking saying no sounds good in theory, but I need this money. I need this job. I need to get it done. So there has to be an in-between there where you're working through dealing with clients, getting the job, but also making sure your business and your timelines are protected. So Let's take it back to when you were in the middle of your career, when you were moving out of the renovations into the furniture, but you were still half and half. So you were saying no to some jobs and saying yes to others. How were you dealing with clients at that time? And how has that changed to how you deal with clients now? Well, I would say back when I started to want to do more just reclaimed furniture and you know, cool projects that I really enjoyed. At the start of it, I would tell people no to the obvious stuff like 
will you finish my basement? Well, no, but I tell you what I will do is I will do the bar top for you, or I will do the shelves and gas pipe, uh, you know, racking for your bar or, or the mantle for your fireplace. I can do that stuff, but the rest of it, you've got to find someone else. You know, that's say 10 years ago or eight years ago when I started getting like that, I'm much more ruthless now where people ask me, uh, well, you know, while you're here, can you just, no, I can't do, I'm not, I, I can't do it. I, I'm not equipped to say, go up on your second story and replace a piece of fascia. I'm just, that's not what I do. You need a repair person or a, a roofing company or something like that, because I'm always, you know, the times when I did take those, I got to the job and I was mad. I was you know, why did I do this? Why am I up on a ladder? Why am I doing this work? So it's really a simple thing. You have to think about, do I want to do that, that work? And if you don't, you have to say no. And you, you know, you just say, I'm sorry, that's, that's not what I do, or it's not in my wheelhouse. And I really do think that people understand a lot more than you think they will. They're actually pretty cool about it because they respect an honest answer. We definitely put a lot of our feelings on the client. We think if I give this answer, the client will think this, but we don't know until we actually say it out loud or send that email or make that phone call what the client is going to say. They might have a totally different reaction than we think they're going to. And the only way to do that is to be true to yourself and true to your business and find out that way. And I love that you said you have to be ruthless because you do. And Mm -hmm. you can be a nice person. You are a nice person. And being ruthless isn't isn't saying no and kicking a hole in somebody's door and breaking their mailbox and leaving. Being ruthless is saying, I don't want to waste your time and I don't want to waste my time going down the path of discussing this. What I'm going to do is recommend you to somebody else. I'm going to say this person can get it done for you because I'm not the right person for this and we'd both be wasting our time. And I like that you said, instead of doing the renovation, I can do this and I can do this. And you stay in the picture and you get a piece of the pie, but you're not doing the whole thing. And I think that also goes to building a community of people around you who do the same things you do and also do different things than you do. That if there is a basement remodel, you know somebody who can do that. And because you're giving them that job, you also get a piece of that job and the piece of it that you want. So you stay in the conversation and you still make money from that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think this is something that I wish I had learned earlier in my career, because I think I've spent too many days doing stuff that I didn't want to do. And I regret that. And now I work hard to only do the work that I want and that I can make the customer happy. And, and honestly, as you get more known, that gets easier. You know, I used to think I don't want my client to get, uh, I don't know, a roofer in here to do their shed roof. I should do it because they might like that guy. And then he might, you know, end up taking work that I might get. But at this point, you know, I've developed enough of a clientele 
over the last number of years that I'm really not that worried. If, if somebody wants, you know, a, a good client of mine needs someone to uh, build a composite deck, that's not, that's not really my thing anymore. I've, I've done some decks. I just, it's not my thing. I have a shop. I work in the shop. I like to build furniture. So somebody else can go there and have that job and I won't feel bad. There's enough to go around. After all these years, it still pains me to say you can let jobs go. It still is scary for me just to say that to people because that's money out the window, but you have to trust in the way you want to run your business enough that you let that job go. And because there's a space, you get a job that works for you, that fills it. Exactly. Exactly. And that way you just keep yourself always doing what you want to do. You said that you've built up a good clientele that knows what you do. And that gives you the ability to make the type of furniture that you want to make. That wasn't always the case. You had to form relations. You had to get your name out there. You had to do all of that marketing to make yourself known to these people. So when you were switching again from renovation to building freestanding furniture, what was that like? What did you do? How did you start making yourself known to the people who you wanted to work with? Well, I've been fortunate in that. um, I mean, starting out even, even in Toronto, when I, when I lived there before I came here in 2005, I wrote a column for a newspaper there, uh, which was a fairly small, it was around 60,000 circulation. So it was a couple of boroughs in Toronto. I guess it was a bi-monthly column on renovation. And so I got a lot and a lot of business through that. So you can start to be a little bit more picky because you know they, you had a lot of credibility. You're a staff writer for this newspaper. A lot of people read it. It was a good community newspaper. And from there, uh, when I moved out here to the Oakville area, I was very fortunate to be cast on a TV show uh, with Debbie Travis. And I was her master carpenter on the first season of, uh, of a, a show called From the Ground Up. And that <laughs> was a crazy coincidence in that I had just moved to Oakville and three months later, I started shooting that in Oakville in a really nice postal code here and, you know, a very wealthy and well-to-do area of East Oakville. So by the time that was even finished shooting, because there were so many people that would come by to see, try and see her. And there was usually, you know, 50 people outside the fence kind of watching it being filmed. Um, by the time that even aired, you know, I was getting calls from that and subsequently went on and I think I've done 10 or 11 shows now on HGTV or some of the different stations that, uh, that air it, but that's, that's helped my, my credibility and my, it's not like I get recognized anywhere, but people know that, you know, through my Instagram, through my Facebook accounts and stuff that I've am on TV and that I do TV and, um, and a couple other things. I, I was featured as a carpenter in a, in a, a raised gardening book a couple of years ago that a friend of mine wrote and had me as I did maybe 13 or 14 projects in this book. So um, I, I have that credibility and I have that, um, 
cachet, you know, as a, a minor local celebrity here that it certainly hasn't hurt my, my business. So I think that, uh, and, and the Debbie Travis show was in 2005, right? When I moved out here. So from that time, I had a very soft landing here, uh, you know, with my first house and a new family out here in Oakville. I have to admit that I knew basically where your answer was going to go with that. And I knew that you were going to say <laughs> I was on TV and I, that's how I started to build my resume. And that's how I started to get clients. And I knew that people listening were going to say, well, I can't be on TV or that works for him, but what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to take what he's saying and relate that back to my business? And I hear that not everybody can be on TV or not everybody wants to be on TV, but Mm. that journey that you took with TV is very similar to what people can do now with social media because because you can get yourself out there and you can do it even in a way that is more stylized to how you want to do it as a cast member on the show you didn't necessarily get to portray everything the way you wanted to be shown i'm sure if it was up to you the entire show would just be based on you and showing your pieces and and that but that was that wasn't the case but with social media now you can control everything that you put out there you can have your own tv network that you are the producer the host the entire cast and that is such an eye-opener in the world of marketing, in the way of getting yourself out there, that it's kind of a game changer. It used to be you had to get exposure. You had to be on TV. But now, if you work it correctly, you can reach just as many eyeballs as a TV show. Absolutely, you can. I think you can, like you say, you can do it in better style. I mean, what what TV has done for me is I have to tell people basically that I was on TV and and it's a strange thing that probably more people who've called me see on my website or on my Instagram that I was on TV than actually saw me on TV and and it's it's what I use so anyone like leaving leaving the social media for one second if if just for example somebody gets a table that they made or a hutch featured in a anything, a small magazine or a photo shoot somewhere, or just like um, any mention like that, you take that and you use that to promote yourself and you get it out on your Instagram and your social media. And you say, look at this. uh, So-and-so magazine, local magazine uh, featured my table and my work. And I hope uh, more people can see this uh, and that kind of thing. And that, that self-promotion, it should be fairly shameless and should be something that you do all the time. Now, I'm not, I'm not as good at it as someone like yourself. And I think more recently, my teenage daughter has really implored me to get a better <laughs> social media presence than I have. Mine's a little static. But the social media potential out there is phenomenal for any business like this. What you're saying about getting your name out there, capitalizing on everywhere your name or your pieces are featured 
is a hundred percent what you should be doing, in my opinion, because mm -hmm. because you can make amazing furniture and it can stand on its own as a beautiful quality piece of furniture. But when you get press, and by press, I mean any press, whether it's the local newspaper or the New York Times, once you get that and add that, you get another layer to your business. And the more layers that you can get that stand you apart from somebody else, the more people are going to decide that you're the person they want to go with. Absolutely. I, I, I really feel that this gives credibility. It gives, you know, widespread introduction to you and your, your work, but anybody, people who see things like, Hey, I was featured in this. They, they think, well, if someone else likes you, you're probably worth checking out. You know, there's some kind of buzz about what you're doing. And if you can keep that up and post a lot, it really creates awareness and intrigue, I think, that wasn't available, you know, even, I don't know, eight or, or 10 years ago. Talking about standing out, your market is the Toronto and the greater Toronto area. And that is a relatively big city. And there's a lot of people who are looking to furnish homes in that area. And and a lot of times when people see that, they think it's a lot easier to work as a furniture maker in a big city because there's so many people who want to pay people for their work. But the reverse side of that is because there's a lot of people, there's also a lot of competition. There's a lot of people who are also trying to make a name for themselves in the furniture world. And so standing out is incredibly important. And that goes back to what we were just talking about, about putting layers to your companies. But what's some other ways that you've stood out? What do you do that keeps you standing out from the rest? Well, I, I think what keeps me standing out from the rest is, is maybe two things. One is, you know, you have to work to be trustworthy, honest, diligent, fair person, but someone who's interesting. I chat, you know, a lot of these customers have invited me places socially since, you know, and I end up not so much in the last two years with COVID, but, you know, at, at social gatherings or parties where I see, you know, many or, of my customers kind of all gathered because they heard of me from somebody who, from somebody who's a friend sort of thing. And I get included in that because I try and be the kind of person that they want to have around the house. And I, I get told sometimes when we do an install for a couple of days that, you know, people are going to miss us when, when we leave. So there, it's important to be really trustworthy and the kind of person that a client is going to leave in their home, you know, without worrying. Second of all, I think what what my brand is about is the story. What's the story with this wood? Where did it come from? Um, how did you get it? How do you hear about it? Do people call you? Do you call them? Do you go to farms? Do you take the barns down yourself? Do you just buy the wood? So it's that kind of thing. And I, I, I've become that guy. I have probably 10,000 board feet of different 
wood in my shop and it's it's everywhere it's in lofts and it's over over my office and upstairs and downstairs and uh, in trailers and stuff and people say do you have any reclaimed elm and i i'll say sure and i walk back and dig it out from behind a pile and they they say how do you know that's there and it's well i kind of have mentally cataloged every piece that comes in here so i remember almost always where the stuff came from so i mean i i would say i go in a sort of four hour radius around getting wood you know and i i look on kijiji facebook marketplace that kind of thing and i've also people call me obviously a lot because they look for someone if they have stuff to sell and when i tell people that you know this is flooring from a house you know in this town and it's roughly 1885 and here's some stenciling and we've taken it apart and put it back as a little tabletop people are really fascinated by that and a lot of times they say can you can you write that down you know and we'll put it in an envelope and kind of keep it with the the end table or the whatever it is the serving tray and um people want to know where this stuff came from and what the story was telling a story with your projects with the wood you're using with the way you're building something is another great way to add a layer to your company people love hearing a story and they love knowing that the piece you made for them is special is a one-of-a-kind piece that is different than anything that anyone could find at a box store or something like that. And using reclaimed materials is a very, I don't want to say easy because it's hard to work with, but it's an easy way to add a story to your pieces, to what you're building. But it also, on the business side, it's hard to run your business with a material that isn't a standard thing. Furniture makers know that material prices fluctuate and you build that into your equation. You can call up the lumber yard and you can figure out mm -hmm. exactly what it's going to cost. And we also know that it's a natural material. So you could buy a certain amount of board feet, but some of that's not usable. And you take that into account as well. But for reclaimed furniture, it's all over the place. You don't necessarily know where it's coming from. You don't know how much it's going to cost. You don't know how easy it's going to be to work with. You don't know, once you clean it up, what it's actually going to look like. So going back to the business side, how are you pricing out projects that the material is one of a kind and you don't have all the ingredients to make sure you know exactly what you're going to be using for it? Well, that's a good question because as I've said before to you know different people who've worked for me, it's every project we do is a one-off and it's like you're starting from scratch. So it's like, I wonder what this will be like to work with. Well, we don't know until we start, unless we're lucky enough to get you know a batch of, of really nice wood that we can make three or four things out of. Sure, the second and third and fourth thing that you make out of it, you're you're pretty aware of, of how the, you know, the wood's going to, you know, react in the, the saws and planer, et cetera. But I think there's a number of factors. Like one of the, the things I worry about all the time is someone will, will 
pick, uh, you know, a wood that I have in the shop for a table. And it's like, geez, I hope there's enough because if we make a mistake on one of the boards, I mean, there's a limited amount of boards, there's whatever number and that's it. Like I, I don't have any more of that. And if I get more somewhere, it might not look like this at all. It's not always easy. No, for sure. And if someone says, can you make me a table out of something that I don't have? And I'm not sure I can, you know, and then I have to try and find it. So that, that's where I say, let me see what I can find first before I price it. And, you know, I call a couple of farmers that I've dealt with who maybe have sawmills or something and say, do you still have some of that, uh, you know, cypress or, or whatever, locust? And sometimes got to drive out there, you know, an hour away and look at it and see if it's going to work or get them to send pictures. I had a project where we needed about a 15 and a half foot by 20 inch walnut countertop. And they wanted that in one piece if, if possible. So all the sawmills are like, well, I have, you know, I have an 18 foot piece and it's 16 inches wide. Well, that's not good enough. And then there's, you know, one guy said, I got one that's 22 inches wide, it's 13 feet long. So finding that exact piece took me almost six months to find. And I finally did find it in, in the, the winter months and drove down to a farm uh, near Niagara Falls and strapped it on a trailer, brought it back, let it dry for another month uh, in, in the shop. Um, and then we were able to plane it down and, uh, and make it. But generally, somebody who wants something like that, you got to wait for it. Like <laughs> it took, uh, I wasn't driving everywhere, but I phoned 20 people. And it was finally a friend of mine who's a, a forestry manager found it for me. But I mean, they're, they're few and far between. And projects like that, whether you're looking for a really large piece or you're looking for a specific type of reclaimed wood, it's easy to say, I can take this project on. I just need some time. But it's harder to account for the amount of time it's going to take when you don't know, like you said, that project took six months just in the sourcing of it. Yeah. Yeah. So when there's a project like that, if there's a question mark on your time, how are you still pricing it out for the client? Because you don't want to be spending all this time and work finding the piece. And then the client says, no, I actually decided I don't want it. You want to make sure if you're putting your time in that you're getting paid for it. Oh, yeah. Well, all, all of the work that I do, anything custom whatsoever, even if it's a, a, a little backsplash, a wooden backsplash, um, I get a deposit of generally half up front. So the, the walnut guy gave me his deposit based on the fact that it might be some time. And I stayed in touch with them. I mean, I, I called them and said, I've made another call. It sounds like there's a farmer who may have two slabs to choose from in that size when we narrowed it down to that. And um, getting this guy to, to care about the timeline, I mean, the farmer, not the customer, was tricky. But we finally got him to agree to meet us in the afternoon and get his 
skid steer out and grab the piece for us. And, uh, and it was beautiful, but this guy had basically paid half of it up front and I was able to get the piece. I mean, I spent some time on the phone, but the actual time to get it was all in the budget. I had budgeted a few hours for, for getting it. And then the time it would take to just sit in the shop and go down the last couple points of, of moisture um, were all accounted for, you know, I'm persistent and, and it's, it's not easy, but that's, that's part of the story too. Right. I mean, this was a customer in Mississauga and I, I told him, you know, this piece came right from a farm that overlooks Balls Falls right near Niagara Falls. And it's a beautiful spot. And it was a tree he cut down himself, you know, eight or 10 years before, and it was all tarped um, out in a, an area of the field. So it, it's a, it's, I hope it's something that that client will tell his friends when they come over and they marvel at, you know, a very large single piece of, of walnut. That's probably the biggest single piece of wood that I've uh, had the pleasure of working. I think as part of the story here is you have to be completely honest with people and say what you're asking me for, I think I can do. It's going to take some legwork. So if you're really serious about it, I'm going to quote it for you and you're going to give me some money and I'm going to start looking for it. And then, you know, I mean, I, I trust my judgment as well. When I see something and I go, I don't, I don't think they're going to like that one. You know, that doesn't look like the other pieces that I already have. So <clears throat> I, I filter it myself. Um, but you, you have to tell people up front. So this is, this is the one that's going to be tricky is getting this piece what you're asking me for so you're going to have to be patient and um you know their options are if that's really what they want then that's the kind of client that you want and if they're truly interested in having uh, what you know whatever it is they're looking for um then their options are somewhat limited too because there's not a ton of people out there that can find pieces that people need if, if you just say to people, um, that's, that's a tall order. I think I can do it or no, I can't do it. You're asking me for a, a 30 foot piece of walnut. I, I don't think they're, you know, I don't think that's around. I, I, that I don't know. Right. But, but 15 and a half feet, I can probably pull off. And when it's pieces of wood with patina on it, where there's some paint or some, you know, old scratches and marks, that's your judgment call to say mm -hmm. this works for the piece or doesn't without the client sort of signing off on that. I have often thought of my job is to assess what someone wants when they come into my showroom or they call me and truly try and understand what it is they're looking for so that you can give that to them and make them happy. So knowing what they truly want and like what they might be saying, but what they really want can, can be two different things because not everyone's educated in the lingo and this, you know, sizing or even measurements or, or what something might actually look like when it's in their home. So with experience, you, you have to filter this stuff for them. It's not a, a foolproof system by any means, but Generally, I tell people, you know, I need, give me some inspiration photos when they're saying, you know, because people will come in and say, I want a harvest table three feet by six feet. 
Okay. How about this? Oh no, no, I don't like that. Well, you know, then tell me more what you're looking for. And a lot of times they'll give me an inspiration picture. They'll say, we really like this one, uh, this picture from the internet, but not gray. Like the picture is in, you know, antique white or early American stain or something like that. So then I can work with that and I can work up a stain sample and say, are we going with these kind of legs and this skirt on it and uh, inch and a half thick top. So it's, it's kind of, it, it cuts off any of the uh, potential um, problems with, with some planning ahead of time. Now, when you get into different, uh, you know, I do have some clients like we all do that have asked for very specific looks and very specific amount of sheen and antiquing on the edges of things. And they, I just try to get assess how much they're handholding they're going to need in the project and, you know, put that in the price and, you know, have them come into the shop a bunch of times to look at it and just be honest and say, is this, have I got it right? Communication is key when it comes to clients. No, no question. Especially with, you know, we're not making Ikea furniture here. We're, you know, we're literally making, like you say, unrepeatable pieces. You've been doing this for a long time. You've been playing this game for a while and you've really found your lane in it. You know your business, you know yourself, you know when you wake up in the morning I don't want to say everything that's going to happen, but you have a good sense of where your business is going to be any given day. And that comes with experience and that comes with going through the good times and the bad times of running your own business. For people who are looking to get into this and who don't have that experience. They don't have that wealth of knowledge of dealing with clients, of dealing with materials, of running a furniture business, but they have that passion that you had and want to have a successful furniture company like you do. And there's also people out there who have been running their business for a long time as well, but they feel like they've plateaued. They feel like they're not able to take their business from where it is to the next level of success that they want to get to. So looking back on your career, looking back on your time running a furniture company and in the industry, what's some advice that you could share with people listening that stuck with you and has changed the way you think about running your furniture business? Well, I would say to people who are starting out is never overpromise. I, I don't know about under-promising, but certainly don't over-promise because if you don't meet the expectations of the client, and that includes the timeline, the money, the quality, and your attitude, they're not going to be happy. And they, they really don't care if you're behind particularly. I mean, people can sometimes... If there's an emergency, they can wait a day or two on an install or something, but they really don't want to hear excuses. They want you to tell them a day that you can do it and do it on that day and do what you say you were going to do. And I think that's why, honestly, why 
especially with TV, why I get called, you know, season after season and show after show is because I just do what I say I'm going to do. We're going to do a project. I say, okay, I think it's going to cost this much. And then I do that so that they're always happy and it's done on time. So I think that translates across to anything. If you just, just do what you said, um, do what you promised time-wise, uh, money-wise, everything. I think that would, that's probably number one for any business. You know, for people who've plateaued in their business, I have tried to keep it interesting. And, and to be honest, that's one of the reasons why I jumped at the chance to be on your podcast. You know, apart from it being pretty cool, uh, what you do and the, the people that you get on, it's another way for me to explore carpentry. It's another way for me to talk to someone about it. And so I feel like I kind of want to learn as much about the carpentry that I like. I know I'll never uh, do some of the, uh, the carpentry that's out there, but as much as I can and for as many, you know, different people as I can, I think that's the best way to, to keep it interesting because you're, you're right. It can, it can get stale a little bit after a while, you know, where for every customer, this is brand new, but for you, it's something that you've done every day and will do, you know, presumably for a number of days, you know, after their job. I appreciate the kind words about the show and I'm glad that you decided to come on because you have a lot to share with this community and you have a wealth of knowledge and experience in running a successful business. And I want to thank you for sitting down with me today and for sharing just the tip of the iceberg of what you have learned over the years. And I appreciate your time and I wish you continued success moving forward and well, thank you, Ethan. I actually find this kind of inspiring. I, I appreciate your take on this and um, obviously your successes, you know, of uh, your furniture company and your podcast and your social media presence is quite, quite strong. You know, your, your game is good. And um, I really, um, I look forward to hearing this, but I really, I, I really enjoyed it. It's, it's given me a pause to think about a few things too. Well, thank you again for the kind words. I truly appreciate it. And, and I know everybody listening is going to get a lot out of this as well. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say, hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.